It's Thursday, October 9th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Details are emerging in the Missouri swine retribution saga. Here now, KSDK reports. Felony charges against this man tonight after a fight over a missing pig. The Lincoln County Sheriff's Office says 22-year-old Joshua Allen Fink was suspected of stealing a pet pig. When the pig's owner and his roommates confronted Fink about it last night, police say Fink stabbed one of them, possibly with a screwdriver, in the head and back more than 22 times. The victim was treated at the hospital and released. So this is what we know, or what we thought we knew. A pig went missing. Fink was the suspect. Pigs owners confront Fink, umbrage taken, screwdriver brandished. Pigs owner gets stabbed more than 22 times, actual police report 23 times. But from Fox News 2 in St. Louis, I learned more. For instance, the purported pig napper slash screwdriver stabber is no Fink after all. The owner of the pig, there's actually three owners. They're all roommates. They live in a house in Winfield. Okay. They're the ones that own the pig. They find out that Finky may be involved in the stealing of their pig, so they go and confront Finky. That was Lieutenant Andy Binder of the Lincoln County, Missouri Police Department. Ah, so we now know the perp wasn't a Fink. Well, he was kind of a Fink, but he was a Finky. Perlined pig, described as Pinky, main suspect, Joshua Allen Finky. Possible porcine pilfering perp Finky, booked and fingerprinted. His digits now are inky. So Finky is facing charges. As for the pig? As for the pig... We don't know where the whereabouts of the pig are. Now, I did talk to the owners. The owners believe that the pig has passed since, just from the information they received, or it could be feral. Or a competing theory, police now pursuing reports that the pig went wee-wee-wee all the way home. On the show today, more animals, dead ones, stuffed ones. Actually, they don't say stuffed, they say mounted, taxidermy. And in the spiel, we'll vet the moderate rebels. But first, the governor's race in Maine. It's a doozy. The seal of the state of Maine depicts a farmer resting on his scythe and a sailor leaning on an anchor. The politics of Maine have long embodied the gravitas of that anchor. Yankee frugality and practicality. Longtime Senators Olympia Snow and Susan Collins routinely rated as the most moderate in their party, the Republican Party. Then there was Angus King. He's a senator as an independent. When he was governor, he was just a very practical and popular governor. But the current governor's race doesn't represent the leaden anchor as much as the sharp scythe. The incumbent governor, Republican Paul LePage, has targeted government benefits in an extremely aggressive way. His Democratic challenger, Mike Michaud, has led in some polls. The latest poll shows LePage with a small lead. This should be a very close race and something of a referendum on welfare and government benefits. Joining me now is Mike Tipping, who writes a political column for the Portland Press Herald. He blogs for the Bangor Daily News. His book is As Maine Went. He's an expert on Maine politics. Hello, Mike. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Is Paul LePage, is he tapping into a popular sentiment in Maine, a sentiment that I associate more with, like, Alabama or Mississippi than Maine? I think sometimes he's trying to turn Maine into Mississippi. (laughs) But, yeah, he's tapping into uh, a Tea Party movement that grew up in Maine in 2010, and it was really unlike anything we've seen in the state before then. 
Is this actually popular? Or if you look at how he was elected, he won in a three-way race in 2010. It's going to be a three-way race again. There's an independent Elliot Cutler, right, who could be a spoiler, and who knows how that'll affect things. Right. If it were a two-way race, he would not be popular enough. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's getting, you know, 30 40%. That could be enough in a three-way race. Has he at all moderated his stances uh, as he's governed? I would say he hasn't. And in fact, in some areas, he's become more conservative and more extreme. Big ones, uh, recently he's gone after immigrants more in Maine and after public assistance, which are usually issues you hear more about in the South than in in a state like Maine. I mean, he even attacked the murals, right? Right. He he tore down a, a mural depicting Maine's labor history. Um, from the Department of Labor. So outsiders, you know, here in New York, I read this as mediated, not through the Bangor Daily News, unfortunately, but through national publications. They paint him as pretty extremist, very Tea Party-ish. Is there a different image in Maine? Do they say, yeah, he's that, but also, I don't know, he's a fun guy on the campaign trail, or he's good at things like he's good at constituent concerns or their kind of secret little nooks and crannies of uh, his politicking that we're not getting nationally? Well, I'd say his uh, strongest supporters are not reading the newspaper or (laughs) following those national outlets. And I think they often see these kind of controversies that he's created as him shaking things up, you know, or or making change, uh, you know, even though it's caused gridlock in, in Augusta. But if you look at his approval ratings, he's never really been that popular, right? No, but he's very popular among his base. Right. Um, and it's, you know, it could be a turnout election where that could matter. Right. So that normally, though, wouldn't be enough to overcome, you know, what the electorate is like and a pretty strong challenger. But then you have this independent candidate. Who are his voters and what's Elliot Cutler's motivation? So Elliot Cutler actually came in second in the 2010 election. Uh, he's an independent. He's independently wealthy, uh, which is why he's able to make this a real race. And he seems to take some of the same Democratic-leaning, progressive-leaning, and moderate voters um, that the Democratic candidate is going for. And so that in 2010, the Democrat and Cutler split the electorate, and LePage won. And it could happen again, although at the moment, Mishu is maybe a, you know, a point or two ahead of LePage. Is Mishu a strong candidate? Yes, he's, he's well-known in Maine. He um, is a longtime congressman from Maine's second district, which is the central and northern part of the state and a lot stronger than the last Democratic candidate. Now, Mishu is gay, and if elected, even though Jim McGreevy announced he was gay the day he resigned as governor of New Jersey, would become the first uh, openly gay elected governor. How's that playing in Maine? It's actually not getting uh, much attention. So there was a lot of coverage of it when, you know, he came out of the closet around that. It has uh, obviously sparked some national interest, but the campaign has really been about issues that are important uh, to Maine folks. Well, maybe it's wrong for me to blame the independent. I mean, it's America. Do what you want. But does Elliot Cutler see himself as a spoiler or does he actually see the Democrat, the actual Democrat nominee as the spoiler? Well, I don't think he sees himself as a spoiler. He obviously thinks he's the best guy to win. But at at this point, the polls being what they are, there really isn't much of a pathway for him to do that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. There's been rumors that he's actually pulled down his TV ads and things like that. It'll be interesting to see if he he stays in the race. So if he drops out, then would you say the writing's on the wall and LePage has a lot to worry about? Right. I mean, all the polls show that the majority of his voters would go to Michoud and it would be a much uh, less close of a race. 
So what do we expect? Do we expect some dirty tricks late? Do we expect this to be, uh, I know the first debate was yesterday, seemed mostly civil. Do we expect things to stay above board? I wouldn't rule anything out. So we've had a real change in our politics um, these last few years. The Republican Party in Maine used to be known as the party of uh, Margaret Chase Smith and William Cohen and Olympia Snow. And LePage and the Tea Party, it's been fascinating how they've changed uh, the Republican Party and changed politics in Maine. That's a lot more aggressive and a lot more um, combative these days. All right. Mike Tipping writes a political column for the Portland Press-Herald and the Bangor Daily News where he blogs. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. So I want to mention the GIST pledge drive, our first pledge drive ever, and I'm seeking to adhere to the best practices of pledge drives. I've learned a lot. I've figured out this from 10 years in public radio. So the first thing is I'm not going to ask for money. That's like the best thing you could do during a pledge drive, not ask anyone for money. I'm asking you for your evangelism, your active evangelism. And all I'm asking you to do is subscribe a person who you suspect will appreciate the gist. So you know people in your life, maybe they don't listen to podcasts, but actively go and say, I got a podcast, I want you to try out. And don't just say it, but do it. Put it on their phone, put it on their device. Now, another way that I'm adhering to best practices is this, announcing an end date. This pledge drive will end one week from tomorrow, one week from Friday. Every so often in the upcoming weeks, I might say, yeah, and subscribe someone to the gist, but this dedicated pledge drive, one more week of this, I'm not going to carve time out and talk about this as explicitly as I'm doing now. And another thing that I'm doing that adheres to best practices is I'm laying a premium on this. Now, in public radio, a premium is like a tote bag or a subscription to a magazine that you may or may not want. But here's the premium. The person who emails the gist at slate.com or alerts us via Facebook or tweet the best story of a subscription or the best person subscribed or the most people subscribed or anything funny in terms of you going out and subscribing someone who you know would like the gist will be honored with the highest order that we here at the gist have. It is our sort of our palm door, the Nudniks Nobel. It is the lobstar of the Antan Twig. Next Friday is the end of another Antan Twig, a three-week period, and we want to honor, with our Lobstar Award, a GIST subscriber who best spreads the word. My word, in an ethical but aggressive manner. So let me tell you a little bit about our specials tonight. We have the stuffed trout. It's very nice. We have the stuffed flounder. It's quite filling, quite popular. We have the stuffed squirrel. That's a little disturbing. We have a stuffed fox. People look at that ensconce. Actually, I just transitioned in my listing of menu items to discussing taxidermy. The last two items could be found in the book, Taxidermy Art, A Rogue's Guide to the work, the culture, and how to do it yourself. And the rogue in question is Robert Marbury, who's with me. Hello, Robert. Hi, how are you? So tell me about Rogue, because you're, you're with Rogue Taxidermy. A Rogue would be a genre of sculpture work that uses taxidermy material. It's sort of pop surrealism. Um, the impulse is rather to make art rather than a natural object. So you're not trying to make a trophy mount. You're trying to make a commentary on pet keeping or something else. What is there a general uh, relationship that tax, rogue taxidermists, art taxidermists have with animals? 
one of the the shifts when you get into taxidermy artists and alt taxidermists, there's this real sense that usually the criticism goes into industrialized farming. Um, some of the people in the book are vegan. Uh, there's a questioning where the food source is coming from. And a lot of the traditional taxidermists are working with hunters anyway. So they're thinking, you know, they're, they're all about conservation. Hunters are probably the biggest conservationists in the country because they need want to retain this land. They tend to eat the food that they're hunting. And so there is a, a shared aspect of respect for animals, shockingly. I think Hitchcock's the one who did did the worst damage to the industry by making this psychotic killer a taxidermist and psycho. I mean, from there on, you had to be this male rage, violent creature to do taxidermy. And majority of people who are entering into alternative taxidermy or rogue taxidermy are are female. As I look at the pictures in the book, uh, some of your work, including Gus, Wild Hammerhead, Nardog, which is a dog with a narwhal's uh, horn on it. It seems like you're also into... uh, Centaurs, chimeras, combo animals. Sure. I, th- I think that Borges had a huge impact on me in terms of what are the mythical animals that are out there and how do, how do we see them in everyday life. And cryptids. We, we, we often use the term cryptid. Cryptid. As in like cryptozoology, like a thing oh, that right, may yeah. or may not exist, like a swamp ape. Uh-huh. I mean, something good that you can't really disprove or prove. So how many artists are featured in the book? So there's 21, including myself. The majority are female. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I think if you if you look at this as outside of traditional taxidermy, which is rather male-dominated, right. maybe there's this opening that allows women outside of traditional taxidermy to show their work. Who's doing the most exciting stuff? You know, there's a couple of people. Uh, Tessa Farmer, her stuff drives me insane because it is so, it's cacophony. And it, what she's making is these uh, fairies, dark fairies. She makes them out of roots and wings. Mm-hmm. And she, the, her whole premise is these dark fairies are taking over and they're they're grabbing animals and forcing them into slavery and labor and attacking and cutting things off. And right. when you see one of her pieces... So we see a wolf. It's It looks like it's beset by bugs and flies. But if you look closely, there's a lot of fairies going on. And they're they're picking apart this wolf's body. And uh, he has... He has Organs hanging out. He's bandaged here and there. He's not having a good time with these fairies. And it really feels very much like when you see one, you just kind of get overwhelmed and then you have to step back. And some of her pieces, she has little binoculars so you can get really in there. Um, that's cool. Another person I, I, that sort of blows me away is, is this, is uh, Kate Clark. Kate Clark from Brooklyn. I'll read the description. Seductively disturbing artwork inspires a double take. Her sculptures have human faces but animals' bodies. Their shorn skin and anthropomorphic gestures make them look all the more human. I mean, yeah, you're looking at essentially a human head uh, with a goat's horns and ears. But, I mean, the face is just... It's like a person walking down the street's face that you'd be looking at tomorrow. Yeah, it, it takes classic sculptural form and then wraps it in fur. And so what she's doing is she's taking really what these neoclassic gazes that are slightly above your eye, very formal, very noble, and she's taking a, a fur, she's mounting it. And, and that's the big distinction. Chef's stuff and taxidermists mount. So yeah. she's mounting this piece over a form. She sculpts the face from a model. She brings the live model. She sculpts the face. And then say it's a wolf, she will shave the, the fur off the face of this animal, use that face with pins to create the human uh, quality. And because she shaved down this fur, the skin, it doesn't feel clean like leather. It looks very much like stubble and human. It's, it's, 
it's really disturbing in person until you make peace with it. It's sort of like that, uh, again, the cacophony. Your mind can't make sense of it. You walk away and you come back and then you go, oh, this is something else. It's, it's an other. Do you know where she gets the human models? Uh, yeah, she gets them a lot from Brooklyn, I think. She gets, she, her models are rather attractive. Yeah. So, but if you, I mean, if you went to a show and she invited her models, that would be the scariest, weirdest, most disturbing thing of all. <laughs> the works of art are disturbing, but if you actually saw these real people pre becoming a bear or a goat, I mean, because you, you, you can imagine, you can't it. sleep after you that. Can, but you can imagine exactly from her pieces, you yeah. you know exactly what they look like. Oh yeah. And so I mean, when they, if they yeah, were to stroll amazing. up to you uh, and ask for a quarter, uh, I think you'd go, oh my, I, I know you, but. You were in my awful dream, but I think it's they're just so beautiful to me. Do you have pets? Uh, I just we just lost our dog. Really? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. No, I mean, did you mount them? No. Way. no. That would be I, weird. I don't. I don't. Um, there are people who understand who want that as a memory. Yeah. I'm not one of them. Because you're also you're not doing that. You're not. You don't want to well, cherish no, him and hang I'm around not... with him. You're making comments on animals. And right. You're not I mean, trying to do realistic animals. And you don't want to turn him into a monster. No. And there are there are people who who do and do want to see their dog or cat that they had with wings flying. Oh, and there are people, I have a friend, there's, in the book you can yeah. see a picture under uh, Elizabeth McGrath. She, mm-hmm. On the table is her uh, chihuahua, which has a beautiful hat and coat and dressed up. But um, sometimes you end up with a second round of death because the bugs pick in. Is that the chihuahua? Yeah. 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 So that actually, the chihuahua on her That desk. now actually has to, uh, she keeps it in her freezer because then the bugs are starting to go at it. And that's freeze-dried. A lot of pets are freeze-dried these days because it's just easier and form-wise. I have a friend who says uh, when someone brings her a pet that's just died, she says, come back in, in six months if you still want it. We'll talk. And she puts it in the freezer, and six months later, they've gone through their grief. They want to bury it or cremate it or something, but they don't want to taxidermy it. You know, I was going to ask you, but as we were talking, as I was reading the book, it hit me. Why has this become a hipster, for lack of a better word, thing? And I don't love the word hipster, but yeah. I think we all know what it means. It's like artisanal in Brooklyn, and because it has so many of the elements. I can't think of anything, any art form that fits in so naturally, like... Um, it's it's the way you guys do it is ironic. Like the, it evokes the Victorian era very much. Like it's urban and rural all colliding. Like it requires actual skill and fine motor skill, and you could do it in a small studio space, right? It's it, there's one guy who does it with cars, but you know, small foxes. You could do that in a studio. It has all the elements of, and you know, it's a throwback to a different era. It has all the elements of what we think of as the hipster. Yeah, and, and you can imagine how many times I've heard the H word as we yeah, like to call yeah, it. Yeah. But but I I totally understand. It's it's very much about this handwork revolution and it's so internet because quite honestly we're having a technological shift that we haven't had since the victorian era with industrialization so um you know you just it's a completely different uh, similar sense of this rift and trying to figure out how am i going to fix this how am i going to make this personal how is my ikea chair going to be hacked into yeah. a personal piece that actually reflects me yeah. so there's a little there's a little bit of patience and a little bit of longevity we'll see whether we in the us end up like the europeans going into a lot more bio art and this may fall in under bio art 
And because in the Euro- European, uh, especially in Euro- in London, there's a lot more artists in galleries making these larger taxonomy pieces. There's plenty of gallery artists in the U.S. Well, is that because it. like really famous and really well-paid guys like Damien Hirst work with animals, and so maybe in London they're trying to find the next one, and <laughs> it's a, almost a money thing? I think, no, I mean, because he's all taxonomy, so putting things in order. Yeah. I think that he comes from a tradition of looking at animals a certain way, which comes from the natural history world that's in very established. And they've just recently had this some huge shifts with the Human Tissue Act and repatriation laws. And so they're really having this resurgence in some ways uh, with a cultural shakedown because now they can't show human tissues that are under 100 years and, and all the cultures that they've gone out and taken objects from are now saying, okay, you need to give us our human bodies back. Yeah. We're not really doing that in the U.S. yet. I mean, the Smithsonian's under pressure, um, but we, and we're starting to repatriate to native tribes, but I, that we don't have the same relationship to animals because we still have a the the old frontier we still have hunting spaces we still have hunters and they really don't right they can't go in out into the woods and hunt and some of that's a feudal issue and some of that's size yeah. um our traditional world really dictates what our artistic world also will be like because you, i can still go an hour out into the woods and see a bear mm-hmm. you're not doing that in london right so maybe their complete lack of this being able to see a bear is what puts them more into wanting to see a bear. Robert Marbury is the author and one of the chapters in Taxidermy Art, A Rogue's Guide to the Work, the Culture, and How to Do It Yourself. Thanks so much, Robert. Hey, thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Let's vet. So the town of Kobani in Syria, but right against the Turkish border, is under attack, fighting for its life, really. Kurds still holding on. U.S. contributing airstrikes. ISIS attacking. But what about the moderate rebels, the Syrian opposition that the U.S. was supposed to arm? Months ago, John Kerry told the Senate that, yes, the U.S. would like to arm the right rebels, but they've yet to be vetted. And we're vetting people very, very carefully. And our, our, our folks who do that because this is something we've really watched very carefully. The president has been very concerned about this question of downstream and impact. And with the exception, uh, there are a couple of instances of an overrun of a warehouse up in the north in Aleppo in one instance, a couple of things. But by and large, uh, we've found the vetting uh, to be pretty effective. Our guys have been doing it for about 20 years now, <laughs> for, you know, for better or worse. And they've gotten pretty good at it. Ah, our vetters are better, not worse. Good to know. As is the fact that our elected officials know the value of vetting. Here's Senator Bob Casey speaking to MSNBC last month. Well, I think we need to, to uh, resolve this issue about uh, the so-called training and equipping of the well-vetted elements of the Syrian opposition. To which MSNBC anchor Craig Melvin replied. Let's talk about the, 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 the training and equipping of the, of the well-vetted uh, Syrian opposition that you just alluded to there. Actually, more of a reference than an illusion, Craig. But Casey picked up what Craig was laying down, talked rebel vetting about half a dozen more times in the interview. Many, many months now of vetting. And here... Not as if the vetting starts after the vote. Not the last vet yet. Vetting has been ongoing by our government for a long time. Here. But I think that vetting has to continue. Here. Who are already vetted. And here. Can you take a well-vetted uh, element of the opposition and train them and arm them? 
So what's with all this vetting? How does the vetting go? Who are the vetters? Are some vetters wetter behind the ears than the better vetters? Good questions. These very questions were put to Admiral John Kirby by a reporter in a Pentagon press briefing yesterday. One other question to ask about um, the situation with vetting troops, because you've, you've stressed that ground troops have to be a part of the process. Where are we? It's been a month. Have we vetted a certain number? What's the number of opposition forces we vetted and when do they start their training? Great question. Yes, great question. Kirby went on to say the vetting would take place in Saudi Arabia alongside our Saudi allies. It's usually hot there, almost never sweater weather for a vetter, but right now I have a special tape of the vetting process, the training video. Strangely, the vetter in this sounds a little like me, but let's go to vetting video number 101, Let's Vet 2014. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming in. I know you're a member of the Syrian opposition. What? No, yes, you're right. I have never thought of it that way. Assad is a member of your opposition the way, if you want to look at it. I guess I was being Western-centric there. Nah, it just means, you know, like, from a U.S. perspective. Look, it doesn't matter. Right now, I just want to ask you a couple of simple questions. Remember, there are no wrong answers here. So just agree or disagree with the following. You ready? Great. I like auto magazines. Super. I sometimes hear voices that aren't my own. No, I mean, it's, I'm not supposed to define it, but I do not think they mean the radio. More like, you know, the voices in your head. Okay, okay, fine. I have occasionally enjoyed a humorous cartoon about the Prophet Muhammad. No, no, just it's just agree or disagree. No fatwa, not a choice. Okay, sure, I'll write that down. Um, agree or disagree again. Women should be allowed to work outside the home. All right. Women should be allowed outside the home. Okay. Women should be. All right. Okay, fine. Okay. Now, this section is just your opinion. Tell me favorable or unfavorable. And the category here is winners of the Booker Prize. All right. Winners of the Booker Prize. Uh, you know, I think the psychologist used it. I'm not sure. I just asked a question. Okay. Uh, Kingsley Amos. Okay. No opinion is fine. You don't have to. Julian Barnes. No, I think he's a man. All right. You don't, again, you don't have to. All right. No problem. Salman Rushdie. All right. Listen, unfavorable. I'm just going to, I'll write down unfavorable. I got it. Got it. All right. Next, we'll go on next section. Uh, word association, Zionism. You know what? We're going to skip that one. We're going to go, we're going to go right to this. This is an open-ended question. You're on a desert island. You can only take one of the following. What would you take and why? Rocket-propelled grenade launcher, bulletproof vest, AR-15. Okay. Sure. No. I, yes. I wrote it down. Unfavorable. For, yeah. For, see? I under, I'll underline it again. Okay. Good. All right. You know what? Thank you for coming in. That is the end of the process. We're going to let you know in about three to six weeks. And as she might have told you outside, if we don't accept you as a vetted rebel, there are still some excellent positions open with our organization. You could be an off-site CIA affiliate or a member of the Kuwaiti royal family. They're our allies, too. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of The Gist, is working on a visual piece. It's a chicken inside a duck inside a turkey, but all of that is inside a quarter woman, quarter fish, quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts drinking a martini. It's a Merluck Gin Turducken. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is on trial for illegal taxidermy. He's going to represent himself at trial, but just to psych himself up, he's mounting a defense attorney. 
You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We are on Yo. You get the app. You subscribe to podcast. And then when the gist is ready, we'll yo ya. You want an email to that effect? We'll give you an email to that effect. Go to slate.com slash gist email or go to facebook.com slash slate gist to interact with us and give us compliments. Only compliments. Okay, fine. Criticisms too. Our Twitter feed is slate gist email the gist at slate.com. I myself am working on a project right now. I just have the sketches. Here's what it's going to be. A plant destroying beetle flying over the Snake River Canyon on a motorcycle with clean burning fuel. Yes, it's the evil Knievel diesel weevil easel. I admit it's kind of feeble. Thanks for listening.